opening question is to you guys. How often in the past few weeks have you said to yourself while reading the news, watching the news, however you get your information, what in the world was he thinking? Or what in the world was she thinking? Uh, I find myself saying that a lot lately. Uh, I, I was just reading an article about a young woman who grew up in the Applington, Parkersburg area. Uh, her town, her hometown, pretty close to home here for us in Iowa City. And she'd gone off to college, become a teacher, went back home. Uh, the story goes that she uh, was immediately a huge success with the other students. She loved uh, the teaching that she was doing. Thank you. And um, was put on a lot of committees for the city, for the school, for whatever. And people thought she was doing a great job. But at the end of two years, uh, due to what one of the students told somebody, they found out that she had been having sexual relations with her students. And coming from a small town like Iona and I did when we first moved to Iowa City, all I could think of is those parents. What was she thinking, you know? That it's going to be so hard for that family, for the family of those students, to survive in that small town, to get along. In another situation, we read, read the story of a guy, a young man that got into a traffic uh, conflict with another person, and they honked horns at one another, yelled at one another, drove away. That was the end of it, or so the lady thought. She pulls into a strip mall because her sons, 13 and 8 years of age, have some event going on, and the young man who she was in an argument with follows her right into the strip mall, pulls out a gun, and starts shooting her as she gets out of the van. And not only is that, but he goes around the van to take shots at her children. Kills the mom, kills the 13-year-old, the 8-year-old runs away. Now, I was watching his interview at the police department later. By all accounts, if you watch that, you think, this is a nice young man. This is a person that you wouldn't expect this kind of violence from, as we so often see them later. And all you can say to yourself is, what were they thinking? What was he doing? What was she doing? This is incredible. We're going to be focusing this morning on a story from Scripture where we're going to ask that same question. What was he thinking? It really comes down to an issue of the heart, doesn't it? Because when we have a thought, when we have an urge, a desire to do something that goes against the very being of God, against his commands, we can have a choice of what we're going to do with that. James chapter 1, verse 15 says that when we allow desire to take root and blossom, it becomes sin. And when sin is fully acted out upon, it leads to death or destruction. And we're going to see that so clearly in today's story. The other day I was driving to work. I live right down here on uh, South Sycamore. And I got up to the intersection of Sycamore Road and Highway 6. And I was just waiting at a red light. And the light had just turned red. But I could see coming up Highway 6 on the tree burn side, this young man striding, walking towards us. And all I could think of, he'll never make this light. He'll never make this light. And sure enough, I'm kind of watching, I don't know if you do this, for the other traffic light to turn yellow, knowing that the green is coming. In my mind, I don't know if you guys are like this, I'm always in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry, but I feel like I'm in a hurry to get to church to have coffee. <laughs> but that's just the way my mind works. Anyway, this young man 
comes right across the intersection just as the green light is ready to pop. And he gets in front of the traffic to my left. And I'm just thinking, this is incredible. What's he? And the next thing I know, I'm driving. I'm moving. And he's only five feet away from me. And as we look at each other as I go by, I'm sure he's thinking, what were you thinking? <laughs> Why would you do this? And all the traffic behind me is going. And as I look in my rearview mirror, I see him just standing there in the middle of the intersection with cars going either side of him. And I'm thinking, Dave, why would it have been so hard to wait another three seconds for him to cross that intersection? How close did you come to running this kid over? You've left him in a terrible position. We find ourselves in these situations all the time. If truth be known, most of us, because we are fallen people, we have thoughts that come through our hearts all the time, constantly urging us to do those things that would displease God. We can't help it. It comes. But here's, this is one of my greatest proofs of God. People say, well, how do you know there is a God? It's because I have so many evil thoughts in my head. Now, does that make any sense at all? It does, because if we are just the product of random molecules coming together, why is it that we are never tempted to do good things? We're always tempted to do evil things. We always have to fight against lying, robbing, hurting others, showing a lack of love, all kinds of things. It's because we live in a world that God created, but an enemy has usurped his place in a lot of ways. We are born, as the Apostle Paul says, as children of wrath into destruction. And unless we give our lives to Christ, unless we respond to his love, that is going to be the end of our lives. We are going to just continue in that path. And the great challenge before us today is not to follow that pathway. Well, let's open up and look at our story. I'm going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you know just by that uh, reference, we're going to be breaking into the life of King David. Starting in verse 1. And what we have here, if you're looking at your bulletin, is what is called a chiastic structure. We're going to be looking at how the writer of 2 Samuel set up this story. He wants you to see that there is a progression of subordination. There is a A statement, a B statement, a C statement, a D statement. And at each level, David's story is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then God is going to take over. And not that David's situation improves, but God is going to reverse engines. So it basically goes A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. And you can just stair-step this whole story right through it. And this is a, a desire of the writer to create this structure. So let's start looking at it right off the bat. What's the first step that David does? Well, we see him descend into a sloth or a laziness. It says in verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say David sinned by doing so, but the author is obviously, because of this structure, giving us an insight into the fact that David should have been with his armies. What was David at heart? Who have we seen this man to be in all the preceding chapters of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? He is a warrior. He is a fighter. In fact, 
we'll learn later that God won't even let him build his temple because David is a man of blood. That's why God created him. He is a defender of the weak. He is a, a promoter of God's righteousness. He is zealous for the kingdom. But somehow, chapter 11 opens up, and we're really not given a lot of backfill information, but David is older. He's probably in his 50s at this point, and he has gotten lazy, slothful. He's decided that he's not going to war. He's going to take the success of Israel for granted, which we can see later on, but that doesn't really work. The next step that David goes to, if it first from laziness, the B statement of our chiastic structure is it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, another hint at his laziness, and was walking, you know, this is very convicting to me as my name is Dave and I do like my couch, and was walking on the roofs of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The next step on David's steps down is that he is going to fall into lust. Now, the king had this prerogative. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, it's very common for kings to build flat-topped houses that allowed them to have a purview of their entire realm, their kingdom. And it was a way to make them feel better. There's no mistake why Babylon was built with the walls that it was built, because the kings of Babylon liked to do the same thing. Go and see what their kingdom was doing, how much they had accumulated to themselves to say, yes, I am great. I am a great king. This is my palace. David's doing kind of the same thing. But unfortunately for him, somebody catches his attention. And this young woman is of such rare beauty, such great beauty, that David instantly covets her. So David has gone into lust. And then there's a series of verbs here using the word sent in uh, English. In Hebrew, it's the same concept. And David sends and inquires about the woman. And one of the people he sent. So you get this picture. Dave's up on the roof. He sees this woman taking a bath purifying herself, as it says later, and then he gets the idea, well, you know what, I'm going to check it out. So our first time to say to David, what were you thinking, is at this very moment. David had a choice. He could have said, well, you know, I shouldn't look. I'll turn my head. Maybe I'll send word over there that she should realize the king's palace is higher than her house. She shouldn't bathe this way. But in fact, this is a very common practice for bathing. Bathsheba wasn't necessarily out hoping to lure the attention of anybody, let alone the king of Israel. So David could have thought, well, I'm, I'm going to stop it right here. But he doesn't. He sends inquirers. He sends people to find out. And this is the tough part, I think, of this whole passage to me. What do they tell him? They said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now to us, unless we know a lot about biblical backgrounds, this means nothing. But to David, this would have meant everything. Iliam, one of his most faithful followers, one of those who was with him back in the old days when King Saul was pursue him, pursuing him, Iliam was one of those who voluntarily went with David into exile, that hid out with him, that was one of his greatest defenders, one of the most loyal friends that he had. This is his daughter. And Uriah, the Hittite, when we get to the end of 2 Samuel, and all the mighty men of David are listed. The very last one listed is this Uriah. He was one of those that fought with David, was a great warrior just like David, one of his closest friends. Does this stop his evil plans? 
And again, we can ask, what was he thinking? Now, most people would think, well, that's enough. You know, I've seen Eliam is like my brother. I've seen his daughter, and I've lusted for her. That in and of itself is evil enough. I've seen my best friend, Uriah, his wife, and I know that she's connected already. This goes against everything that I have fought for my entire life and stood for. So, verse 4, again, the verb sent. So David sends messengers, and he takes her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now David has gone into rape. Now it is the prerogative in ancient Near Eastern kingdoms for a king or a man of great wealth to be able to say to a woman, you're now mine. It's not quite the same as it is in our culture today. However, this is still rape. He's taking something that is unlawful and taking it to himself. And the reason we know this, of course, is because of chapter 12, when God sends Nathan the prophet to David and says, what have you done? You've taken the one ewe lamb from this man when I've already blessed you with all these sheep. You see, God has already blessed David with multiple wives and beautiful concubines. He's had as many women as he could possibly want, and yet he wants one more. Laziness, lust, the C-step is rape. What could be next? So she sleeps with David. She returns to her house, and the women conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's a two-word phrase in the Hebrew. I am pregnant. It says everything. You could say it's a pregnant pause. Bathsheba is saying the jig is up. We're not going to be able to hide this. So David goes into spin mode, hoping to you know, get his image back up to where it needs to be. So he sends word to Joab, the commander of the armies, who's, by the way, besieging Rabab at this time, where David should have been. And he says, send Uriah the Hittite, basically, to me. Send him home. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now Uriah came to him. David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war was going. He's making small talk. He's trying to conceal what his whole purpose really is in this situation. And Uriah makes a good report. And then he sends Uriah home. And if you know the story, you know his whole point in doing this was to get Uriah to go home, have uh, sex with his own wife, and then he could cover the pregnancy as being really Uriah's child and not his. But that doesn't work because you see Uriah being one of David's mighty men. <coughs> he refuses to go and see his wife. He's going to stay and be pure. He's going to stand for those who are still fighting in the war. So Uriah goes out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. Isn't that a nice touch? But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. This really frustrates David. When they told David Uriah did not go to his house, David says to him, How have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah replies, the ark. What is the ark to an Israelite? It's God's dwelling. It's the most holy object in all of Israel. I did not go to my wife because of the ark. And he said, and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Now, he could have very easily looked at his friend David and said, what were you thinking? Why would I do this? I feel like I would violate God's commands. Verse 12, David says to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back, hoping to try it one more time 
Uriah remains in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David invites him back, and he eats in his presence, and they drank. So to make him drunk, this is David's third attempt at making this come out well. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch, that's Uriah, with the servants of the Lord, but did not go down to his house. This is getting very critical for David at this point. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He gives up, basically. So David has gone from laziness to lust to rape. Now he's trying to use deceit. And now he's going to take it even one step further in this chiastic structure. In the letter he wrote, he said, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. Holy cow, who is this guy? How is this man the David that we've been reading about? He's basically going to murder one of his best friends to cover his sin. And Joab basically does that. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. He said, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, you could put in there your best friend, Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. Uh, this is classic when we're caught in sin, isn't it? David's reply, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Basically, he's saying to Joab, you know, people die every day. Not a big deal. Laziness, lust, rape, deceit, now murder are being laid at the feet of David. No compassion, no conscience at this point. Now, is David an evil man? Would we characterize him as being an especially evil person? Is he like Ahab, one of the wicked kings of Israel? Not at all. When we read through Psalms, many of which David wrote, we see a man who's passionate for the things of God. But yet, look what he's capable of. Afterward, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented for her husband. She went into a period of mourning, but when it was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. A, B, C, D. And here's the D statement. At this point in the story, David believes that this whole ugly affair is over. It's been fulfilled. He's done what has been done. He is taking care of the situation in his mind. No one else needs to hear about this. This sin will stay totally uh, ensconced within his knowledge. But then that very critical verse, second part of that verse, verse 27, he says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This, by the structure of this passage, is the most critical part of the word. By what David had done, he had displeased the Lord. And all I can tell you is that David's life will never be the same again after this. To start building it back out from A, B, C, D, now D, C, D, A, God is going to take over starting in chapter 12. David, if you think that this is covered, if you think that you can do this kind of thing, and get away, for, get, get away with it. I've got news for you. First thing that happens <coughs> is that Nathan is sent, the prophet Nathan, to rebuke David and to give him the parable of the ewe lamb, which many of us have already read. 
but just to summarize it, he basically is saying, God says to me this, I've given you everything that you've wanted. I've given you riches. I've given you women. I've given you ownings uh, of property. I've given you everything. Anything that you have asked, I have not withheld from you. And in my power as God, that could be anything. And yet, it wasn't enough. You went out and unlawfully took that which wasn't yours, and you brought it back to yourself, and you murdered and you deceived. What are we going to do? And if you know the story, David goes into a period of repentance. He hears Nathan's words, and it just rocks him to his heart. And he decides that he's going to ask God's forgiveness. His great hope is that his child, the one that he bears with Bathsheba, will be saved that she'll be preserved, and unfortunately, she isn't. And if you remember the story, the servants come in to see David, <coughs> who has been uh, not eating, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, has been in great repentance, and immediately after the child dies, in the middle of chapter 12, uh, David goes right back, and I love his line here, because the servants are wondering what happened, and he said, while the child was still alive, in verse 22 of chapter 12, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now that sounds like a severe enough discipline for David to deal with the whole Bathsheba incident, but it's not. We're going to see the repercussions of David's discretion, his transgression, over and over again through the end of 2 Samuel to the beginning of 1 Kings. In the sin of Ammon, one of his sons, taking his stepsister, Tamar, and basically raping her. <coughs> and the anger that comes from Tamar's brother, Absalom, and taking the kingdom away from his father because his father did not deal with this sin. Why do you think that David did not deal with Ammon in a more direct way? Because he didn't want to be a hypocrite. How could he get on Ammon's case for raping his stepsister when I'm sure, as this happens to all of us when we get into sin, it starts echoing, who am I to judge another? What right do I have to proclaim God's commands when I've done the same thing and worse myself? And because he doesn't do that, because he doesn't deal with the situation, it ends up being a very devastating situation for David himself. There's a civil war. Absalom takes all of David's concubines, and he abuses them on a hillside in front of everyone else to see. David's sin is in some ways exposed so the entire kingdom can see it. And it goes on from there. David is mocked. He's mocked by his own uh, general. Still staying in chapter 12, if you look at verse 26, Joab, his general, fought against Rabab of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And then he says, this is after he takes the city, by the way. And he knows full well what David has done and that he has commanded him to allow Uriah to be killed. And he says, David, come on down here. Basically put on a show. Show everyone that you're still king. He mocks David. And he says, I've lost all respect for you. But come down here, act like a king, and we'll finish taking this city. And everybody will think that you've done it, but you and I know better. And later on in the story of David, we see that Joab will take advantage of this situation and actually have pretenses to the kingdom himself. So that does not work out for David. 
And all the way to the end of David's life, we can just say this with confidence, he was never the same man again. This is a man that enjoyed so much. The second point on your bulletin there is what if, what happened to this man to make him this way? The David that we knew at the beginning of 1 Samuel, what kind of person was he? Many of us have in Sunday school class pictures of David playing his harp, David watching the sheep, David who could kill a bear or a lion with a sling, David who was called into Saul's presence to calm down this maniacal king with music, David who goes out and kills Goliath out of faith, David who is blessed by Samuel as the future king of Israel, chosen because he is a man after God's own heart. Remember Samuel's words. He's not the biggest. He's not the best. His brothers, his older brothers, are all better in stature than David. But God does not look on the outward appearance. God looks on the inward. That's the David we had known. So how in the world did this man become the David that we see? I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to judge others especially those in charge, right? Those in politics, and depending on whatever your political leanings are, we've had several presidents where we could just point fingers at, right? But I keep coming back to this scripture passage, and I think, who am I to point a finger at anybody? Because Jesus Christ in his blood is the only thing that makes me righteous. His, his power of healing, his power of reconciliation, is what brings me to my knees and makes me think, you know what, we're just fellow strugglers in this. This is where our society has problems. Often when we take a stand for good things, often when we say this is what God says, and we do that in any sort of public way, what's going to happen? People are going to start looking for the chinks in your armor. Where are you weak? Where have you already messed up? To the point where it becomes almost fearful for righteous people to take a stand for God in our society. Well, I don't want to do that because if anyone ever found out this sin in my past, I would lose all face. I would lose any credibility. But the truth is, when we start in humility, when we start with the idea that that can happen at any moment, that I have sinned, we never stand up in front of others and say, I'm great in God. I'm a wonderful person. We stand up and we say, you know what? I've been forgiven. My sins have been paid for. And I'm not a perfect person, but I do serve a perfect God. I do serve a perfect Redeemer and Savior and a Messiah. David lost that image in his mind for a while. Even though he knew that God and he knew him well, he did not remember that at this time. So when I'm saying to David, what were you thinking? I can often say that right back at me. What were you thinking, Dave? What were you thinking? What are some of the things that we should think about this as we look at these verses? Well, first of all, sin crouches at our door. Genesis 4, if you remember that story of Cain, and Cain is being sent by God away because he's killed his brother, another unfortunate incident, because desire took his heart. He wanted God's attention for himself. And when God didn't give it, he killed his brother out of jealousy. And now God is sending him away. And he says to Cain, just remember this, sin is crouching at your door. We're told in the rest of scripture that Satan is constantly on look for ways to trip up God's people. That Satan is a lion prowling about 
looking for whom he can bring down. I don't care how long you've been in Christ. I don't care how moral of a person you are. I don't care how strong you are. You may have been preaching like I am this morning. You may be leading Bible studies. You may be a public figure for Christ. But never take it for granted. Never get to the point where you think, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about those things. Because just like David, there may come an afternoon when you're not where you're supposed to be and sin enters into your heart. Desire takes fulfillment, which leads to sin, which leads to destruction. One of my favorite sayings that I, I have written down in my journal to help me with that is be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. That has saved me from so much trouble in my life, and I can probably point out to you all the times I've been in trouble is when I violated that little saying. God's leading me to be here, and if I don't want to do it because of laziness, because of, you know, some feeling inside, I'm missing out both on a blessing and I may be incurring a judgment. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. None of us, until the day we stand before Jesus in heaven, are going to be able to say, I am free from the temptation to sin. It can be follow us all the time. And there's no fool like an old fool, right? When somebody's been walking with Christ forever, and then you hear of something that they do, how many times have we seen elders and pastors do something crazy in their old age, and you think, what, what happened? What were they thinking? They weren't thinking of their people. They weren't thinking of their Lord. They weren't thinking of their church. And just like King David, sin is never an individual thing. It's never about you, God, and me. It starts that way, but then we'll see that that sin has a tremendous impact upon our families and upon our community, and it just spreads like ripples. How often, Iona and I, my wife, is here this morning, we do a lot of marriage counseling, and we see people that walk away from their marriages, and never, never, never is that just between a husband and wife. That so often goes throughout the rest of the family. They start choosing sides. They get angry for the other person. And then it starts spreading through the community. And by that community, I most often mean the church. And the church finds itself on opposite sides of issues. Never is sin able to be localized but just between you and God. Now, God forgives David. We know that. But the consequences of David's sin go on and on and on. I often think, when I look at families that are going through crisis, what would have happened if that dad, if that father had been a faithful man? Who knows what blessings God would have rained upon that family? Who knows how that family would have been blessed? We'll never know now, because they're gone their separate ways. We had a, a family in our older church that uh, the husband decided he was going to leave his wife. They had three boys, young boys, and I remember sitting down with the husband, who had been the worship leader of my youth group, who had worked with me in so many ways. And I said to him, you know this is going to have a huge impact on your children. And he scoffed at that. He scoffed at that. And the boys, he told his boys that. And his boys said, well, we're going to live to prove Dave Foster wrong. We're going to grow up and be excellent students, excellent people. And maybe they will. But somewhere along the line, this is going to play out. This is going to take, I've never seen it fail to happen. It takes a, a toll 
become more than just us. Uh, one lady that we know that works with the children at the University of Iowa's uh, Child Psychology Unit tells us there has been no greater impact upon kids that she works with than the dissolution of a family, husband and wives going different directions. There is no such thing as a good separation, a good divorce. God wants what he wants, and he will bless what he blesses. Sin crouches at our door. What have thoughts are we letting into our hearts? What desires do we entertain without dealing with them? If you were in David's position and you were going up on that roof that day, how would you counsel him? What would you say to him? If you were sitting with me at Sycamore and 6th Street, how would you have rebuked me? David, where'd you get that attitude? Is that showing love to this person? Or are you more concerned the rightness of crossing with the walk sign and not with the don't walk sign? And I would have been glad to say thank you. Thank you so much for correcting me. I don't know where that thought came from. But unfortunately, we don't do that. Sometimes that desire enters our heart, and we let it grow and take fruition, and it starts to produce sin, which leads to destruction. Second thing I have on your notes there is that it's hard to live your life, your entire life, for Christ. One of my favorite professors in seminary, Howard Hendricks, challenged us with this saying. He said, look in the Old Testament. How many of the great men of God actually finished their life strong for Christ, for God? And it's hard to find. You know, you think of Moses, you know, striking the rock. He doesn't get to go to the promised land. You think of David and the destruction he made of his family. You think of Solomon, and he's going off with his foreign wives, and he's actually sacrificing his children to foreign gods. And you think of Rehoboam splitting the kingdom and so forth, and you can just go on and on and on down the line. So another saying that we have is the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. The Christian life is a marathon. And it has its ups and downs. We're not perfect people. But when we go down, we always have to pursue God back up. When we go A, B, C, D, we have to remember there can be a D, C, D, A. God may work his discipline in us to call our attention to something that we've done that doesn't please him, but God will always forgive, and he seeks to restore. We have to have that marathon mentality in mind. I meet too many people who think, well, I've sinned too greatly. God can't forgive this. I've disappointed my family and others, and there is no coming back. And they just give up. And I'm telling you, that's not the God I serve. That's not the God I see in Scripture. I love what David writes in Psalm 51. It says at the start of Psalm 51, directions to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. This is right in the heart of this whole story that we're talking about this morning. Listen to what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And I'm going to jump up to verse 10 where he starts, and this is one of my favorite songs. There's actually a song made of this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What a prayer. One of the things that God loves about King David is not that he is 
a person in his youth that was righteous, but that his whole life was covered by sin and repentance. David knew how to repent. David knew how to come back to God even when it looked the darkest. Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, and he quotes David from Psalm 32, Blessed is the man who, like David, has had his sins covered, whose transgressions have been blotted out. As bad as David has done, God's forgiveness and grace is greater. Has David been forgiven for his laziness? Yes. This is the part where you wake up. Yes. Has God been for, has David been forgiven for his lust? Has David been forgiven for his rape? Has David been forgiven for his deceit? Has David been forgiven for his murder? Has David been forgiven for his cover-up? Amen, right? So how in the world do we hesitate to ever go to God and ask his forgiveness or lead others to the same thing? When you hear of a brother or a sister who says, I, I am too ashamed, and you say, you don't know my God. My God's not like that. The blood of Christ covers every sin that we can commit. We're going to go into communion here in a little, in a second. And as we do that, we're reminding ourselves that it is the blood of Christ that has made us into a new creature in Christ. And even if you don't do anything else with wisdom, such as being where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, or you don't remember that this is a marathon, or do you have to prepare yourself? Think about that for a second. How does a sprint runner prepare himself for a race versus how does a marathoner prepare himself for a race? Totally different situations. You guys need to be preparing yourself as marathoners. We're in this for the long haul until Jesus comes back. And that means as a community of sinners, as a community of people that don't do everything perfect, we are called upon to forgive one another. It's sometimes our sin, it's sometimes your sin. But we will forgive because Jesus has forgiven. We will restore because Jesus restores. Is there any sin too deep, too great, too horrible for the blood of Christ? to forgive. No, that's right. No, there isn't. He, his atonement, his propitiation, his redemption is for all eternity. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. But nevertheless, it's there. How dumb would we be to not take advantage of that? It's a great gift. When you go to the table today, you're thinking, God, thank you. Thank you that you cared enough about me to fulfill your plans and purposes for us and that you don't let my sin get in your way, that I can plead the blood of Christ and stand righteously before you no matter what I've done. We have to keep that account with God. David eventually finds that out. And over and over again in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, David is held up as a person to be esteemed, to be followed. I don't know when the last time in our society we've said, follow this murderer, follow this rapist. We want to dwell all too often upon their sin, not upon their redemption. But we've been redeemed, and we have to be humble in that. Love one another. Father, we just thank you for our time in your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it. May we learn from the life of David and the life of Bathsheba. We don't know what was going on in David's heart at this time. But, Lord, we do know what was going on in his heart after this time. He pursued you. 
He loved you. He begged your forgiveness. He pleaded for restoration. He wrote more psalms to you, declaring his undying love for you. Father, may we be the same kind of people. May we be those that pursue you. And no matter how many times we fail you or to what depth we have failed you, may we have the confidence in saying, I am forgiven. I can be restored. And Father, some of us may be living right now in the discipline of God. Even though we're forgiven, often there are consequences for the sins that we commit. God, I pray for the strength and the endurance and the perseverance of those of us who are going through those times right now. May we keep our eyes fixed on you. May we just every day claim our position in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, I just ask that you just take a moment of silent prayer. What we do is we invite anyone who knows Jesus as their Savior to participate in this communion. And we're gonna, when the time comes, you can walk to any of the stations around the edges of the room and then help yourself to the various elements, bread first, the cup second. I'm not going to lead you in that common prayer at each of those elements. I'm just going to pray for us before we do it. And then we're going to have some worship music playing. And when we're done, we're done for the morning. So just take a moment, examine your hearts before God, and then I will close this time in prayer, and we'll go to communion. Father, Satan may crouch at our door. He may be like a lion that roars, but nobody, no, nothing can stand up against the lion of Judah. His act on that cross, his shedding of our blood, of his blood for our sins, is what allows us to sit here today, to be part of your kingdom, to enjoy the benefits of adoption, of sonship, of daughtership, and we thank you for that. Lord, forgive us in the name of Jesus for those things that we have done that displease you. Forgive us when we haven't been at the right place at the right time, when we forget that this is a marathon and we show flashes of brilliance in a short sprint, but we have really failed in the long-distance race of life. I pray for us that you would strengthen us, you'd give us courage, you'd give us just the ability, Father, tomorrow to influence our communities in the name of Jesus. Father, you said at one time that you were sending your son to be a blessing to us, that you loved him, and he in response said, well, then love my people. Take them as your own sons and daughters. And on that last night before he was crucified, in that upper room, he said, this is my body, take, eat. And when he had the cup, he said, this is my new covenant in you. And he said that we would do this in unity, and in grace. And Father, as often as we do it, we think of what Jesus did on that cross for us. We love you, God. We accept our offerings to you today. And I pray, praise you, Father, for the fact that we get to take of the table together. In Jesus' name, amen.